Good morning, brothers and sisters. Hope you are well this morning. I have a big Bible because <laughs> I'm older <laughs> and I need the bigger print. So I've entitled the message today the, tri the uh, jubilant entry, entry rather than the triumphant entry. And as you may know, uh, scripture is inspired, but titles in the scripture are not necessarily inspired. <laughs> They're just helpful to us to find things when we're thumbing through the scripture. And so there's a reason why I have jubilant, as you'll find out in the message as we go along. So first I'd like to set the scene for us as we think about the passage that we're going to read a little later on. And the scene is 33 AD in Israel under Roman occupation for quite some time. Now the Romans had restructured the political scene and carved up the country into different political units for the purpose of reducing the possibility of revolt against their rule. In addition, people who lived in Israel paid between 30 and 50% of their earnings and their property in taxes to the Romans. Now this is quite burdensome for someone who's poor, struggling, just to make a living. Um, taxes were paid to cover infrastructure like highways and bridges and waterways, but they also paid for the opulent structures that the Roman leaders lived in. If there was drought or hardship, difficulty, and someone couldn't pay their taxes, they ended up in prison or their lands confiscated. If you were a farmer, as many people were, trying to eke out a meager existence, this could be quite difficult for you. The challenge for many people was just to find enough food to feed their families and keep a shelter over their head. However, trade was quite lucrative. A major trade route runs from Africa up into Europe and Asia right through Israel. However, the Romans taxed these trade goods at every point along the trade route. So things became quite expensive. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus being anointed before his crucifixion with the jar of nard was very expensive. Remember the disciples were complaining that someone had used something so expensive that could have been sold and money given to the poor. Or frankincense, which was burned in the temple in the regular services that were held there. Very, very expensive because of the Roman taxes. And some people, out of desperation, out of anger, joined anti-tax groups, and if they were caught by the Romans, were crucified. And in Galilee, there were thousands crucified along the trade route in that area. People were also squeezed at the temple. The money changers converted the Roman coins or other foreign 
monies into temple money and so cheated the people. But without temple money, the worshipers couldn't buy their sacrifices and so honor God and seek to have their sins covered. The temple priests were feverishly working to try to keep this delicate balance between worshiping God in the temple and keeping the the Romans off their backs. They considered Jesus to be a person that was bringing trouble to them and making their job even harder, and so they despised him for that and many other reasons. So it's not surprising that the people longed for someone who would throw off this yoke of oppression. Some of these same people lined the street as Jesus came along riding on a donkey and the colt of a donkey. So let's look at Matthew 21, and I'll read the passage for you. In 21, verses 1 through 11, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the uh, Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, a foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So let's pray and entertain what God has for us today. Loving Father, we thank you that your son did come, gentle, speaking to the hearts of people through your miracles, through your love, and through your mercy. Lord, I pray today that, that, Lord, you'll help us to hear the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the prophecy about Jesus riding on the donkeys is found in Zechariah 9.9. And later on, I will read a number of prophecies about who Jesus is. But it's interesting to note that Jesus, who we celebrate as our king and our risen savior, came at this time gentle. He could have come into Jerusalem riding on a white stallion with thousands of soldiers behind him to take over. But he didn't do that. He came gentle because this was his first entry into Jerusalem. 
as the one who would bear our sins and die on the cross. So he came as a very different kind of king, a king to rule over all the darkness and destroy it. They threw their cloaks and the cut palm branches and spread all of that across the road. You say, why would they do that? First century red carpet. <laughs> because they were honoring someone who they believed deserved honor. The crowd shouted, son of David, which is actually a political term. Mark uh, tells us that they said, blessed is the coming king, kingdom of our father David. Luke tells us, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And John says, blessed is the king of Israel. So these people were looking for a Messiah who was a political king. But that's not who Jesus was. Not at that time. <laughs> If the crowd thought of Jesus as a Messiah, they thought him as a king, not a savior. Who were these people who were lying in the street and why were they throwing their cloaks and branches on the road? So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are one of those persons, one of those thousands and thousands of people lining the roads going into Jerusalem. And imagine also that you are one of those people that followed Jesus. Maybe you came down to the Passover um, from Galilee or from Samaria. So imagine that you're there when the 10 men with leprosy came and begged Jesus to heal them. And you're standing there and you're watching what's going to happen. And you watch as Jesus touches them and speaks to them. The leprosy is gone. I think we sometimes take the miracles in the Bible sort of for granted. Yeah, Jesus did this. Yes, Jesus did that. But imagine observing it. Imagine being a spectator and seeing these things. Or maybe you're from Capernaum. And you're sitting in the house and Jesus is teaching and you hear a banging on the roof. And then you hear the roof's being ripped open. What's going on? And then you see this man being lifted, set down through the roof in front of Jesus. What is this? What are these guys doing? They're tearing up this guy's house. Did Jesus get angry? No, he commended him for their faith, that they were willing to do anything to get their friend in front of Jesus, believing that if they could just get in front of Jesus, he would be touched, he would be healed. Or how about the epileptic boy? The demon was throwing him into fire, into water, torturing this poor child. And you watch Jesus speak to that spirit, that evil spirit, and it leaves the boy and he's in his right mind again. Or how about being in the synagogue on a Saturday and there's a woman with a crippled hand all shriveled up and Jesus says, just stretch out your arm and you watch this gnarled, crippled hand open up and become whole again. Amazing. 
wonderful, worth praising God for doing this wonderful miracle and touching the life of this woman. Perhaps you're on your way up to Jerusalem with Jesus walking on the road. And there's a blind man sitting by the side of the road. And we know from scripture, this is Bartimaeus. And he cries out to Jesus and asks Jesus to restore his sight. And there in front of all the throng of people, Bartimaeus receives his sight. I can just imagine Bartimaeus leaping and jumping with joy and wanting to join the throng with Jesus into Jerusalem. How wonderful, how amazing. It's not surprising that the people were throwing down their cloaks and shouting Hosanna because they'd seen Jesus do many wonderful things. Seen Jesus cast out demons, even raise people from the dead. Imagine that you're with Jesus and you come upon this Syrophoenician woman in Samaria weeping over the death of her little girl and Jesus, full of compassion and love, tells the little girl to rise. I mean, we've seen him give sight to the blind and make the lame walk, but this child is dead and now she's alive again? Wow, unbelievable. But of course, we know that's not the only time. There are three recorded in the Gospels. The other ones are um, the widow woman, so her husband is gone. Her young son is dead, and she's carrying him off to the graveyard. And Jesus has compassion on this woman, because who will care for her but the son? And so he raises the son back to life again. So the woman has someone to care for her in her old age. And of course, the most famous one is Lazarus. And we're all pretty familiar with that story, how Jesus waited and didn't go immediately when he was asked. And the reason why? For the glory of God. Not to just perform another miracle or uh, something like that, but He wanted people to see the glory and the power and the majesty of God. And you know the story. They rolled the stone away and he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus is trying to walk because he's all wrapped up. His mouth's all covered up. and uh, says, unwrap him. So many people had seen all these amazing things that Jesus had done. So again, it's no surprise that they would be worshiping him, actually. But did these people really know who Jesus was? It's no surprise that they liked Jesus. Maybe he'd do something for them, show a miracle, feed them, become the king. They were jubilant and praised God for all the things he had done. They had tasted the blessing of God and wanted more. But they did not know who Jesus really was. The crowds, if they thought he was uh, anything, he was a prophet, a great teacher, a healer, 
a miracle worker, or maybe a political power. But they didn't really know who Jesus was at that time, even though they praised him. Now, the scripture does give us some understanding about who Jesus was. And I think if you reflect on these prophecies, you'll see how amazingly specific they are. Uh, He's the promised offspring of Abraham, a descendant from the tribe of Judah, heir to the throne of David, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, would have a ministry in Galilee. He would be rejected by the Jews. He would have a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we just read. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. See how exact some of these prophecies were given hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Silent when accused, struck and spit on, suffered for us, crucified with sinners. The Psalm 22 tells us quite vividly what it's like to be crucified. And just a few lines from that Psalm, his hands and feet are pierced, he's mocked and insulted, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing, his side was pierced, not a bone was broken, but he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. This is the one we call Christ or the Messiah. But what, does, what do those words mean? Well, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one of God, the expected king and deliverer of the Jewish people. And if you know a little bit about the history of Israel, they needed deliverance a lot of times. They were often <clears throat> getting themselves in trouble. And Christ is a Greek term for Messiah, meaning an anointed one. It comes from the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God. And John said in his gospel, Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John uses this particular phraseology of believe in, not just believe. There's lots of people that believe in God, or they believe there was a historical Jesus, or they give some mental assent to some higher power. Um, But believing in is not the same as having knowledge of. Even the demons know there is Jesus, and they shudder at his name. But believing in means having a personal relationship with Jesus through faith in his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Jesus taught many things that we read in the Gospels. 
But his message from the very beginning was repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So we hear this word a lot, and we've mentioned this word a lot in this church over the last several years. But what does it really mean? Some of these Bible words sometimes can be a little confusing or we just quite can't quite grasp what the meaning is. So repent means to change your mind or your purpose, to turn from going in the wrong direction and going in the right direction, to turn from sin and turn toward God. And it's a call to an individual, each one of us. And the verb in uh, Jesus' message here is in the present tense. Sorry, this is the English teacher coming out. (laughs) But that's kind of important because present tense means now, today. So Jesus was calling people to repent today. But the present tense also means continuing. So in other words, it's today. And then tomorrow it's going to be today again. So in other words, this is an ongoing, continuing process in our heart. And we often, some of us have prayed and asked Jesus to come into our heart and given our lives to Jesus. And sometimes we think, well, I prayed the prayer. I'm in, right? I'm good. So I can just keep on going, right? But salvation is not a one and done. Salvation is a process. So this means that we keep on repenting as the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and shows us something in our heart that we need to turn away from. John's uh, first letter of John in verse 9 He gives us a wonderful promise. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, may God give us grace to turn from those things that displease him and turn to him. I'm sure you're all familiar with the parable of Jesus, which I would like to call the log and the speck, where we're so good at seeing the speck in our neighbor's eye, but we have a two-by-four coming out of our eye. Jesus was making a joke here, sort of, right? But it's true. We're very good at seeing what's askew in other people's lives and we're not so good at seeing what's wrong in our own. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17 as he was preaching there God commands people everywhere to repent because he has set a day he will judge everyone. God is God's proof is that he rose Jesus from the dead. We often think, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, yeah, that's great. But do we stop and think 
We have death because of sin. That's what takes us to the grave. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He went to the grave, but he rose out of the grave. Death could not hold Jesus. So he has power over sin, power over death, power to give you and I eternal life. That's something to be excited about and to praise God about. So I want to read you another passage that is quite um, challenging, I think. It's from Revelation chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 11. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with this passage as well. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who's seated on it, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So God's keeping a record of you and me. Whoa. The sea gave up its dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Very chilling words. So I tell you, today is the day of salvation. We do not know what will happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. Today is the opportunity. Today you are here and God is speaking to you. I would like you to pray and I'm going to guide you in just a minute. I want you to tell God that you're sincerely sorry for your sins. If possible, name them. Now, you don't have to speak out loud. We're not here to embarrass anyone. We're only here to make our heart right before our God. Ask him to forgive you. Ask God to give you a new heart and a new life. Surrender yourself to Jesus who paid for your sins on the cross. Now I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Again, I don't want to embarrass anyone. But if you are not certain that you are in God's kingdom, if you are not certain that you are saved, that you're not certain that your name is written in the book of life, I would like you to pray. You can pray in your own heart. You can pray silently. You can pray out loud. Feel free because we're praying before God. Dear loving Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge, Lord, that I have done and said and thought many things that are unpleasing to you. And Father, I ask you to forgive me because of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross 
He died there to pay for my sins. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and give me a new heart and a new life to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. In your name I pray. Amen. Did you pray? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) But if you prayed, praise God. The only thing I suggest that you do, if you really did pray that prayer and did really desire to give your life over to Christ, tell someone. Tell a friend, family member. Tell the pastor. Tell an elder. Tell someone. I prayed that prayer. They'll be happy. They'll be thrilled. But I also want to talk to those of us who believe in Jesus, maybe have walked with the Lord for years. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't expect you to give me a verbal answer. Do you have any continual sin in your life? Are there any sins that you still practice? Jesus says, repent. We often look at our at self instead of Jesus. I'm broken, I'm weak, I can't stop. God understands. But we need to look to Jesus, not at ourself. If we look at ourselves, we'll never get better. We need to look at Jesus. Or we judge others, we compare ourselves to others. We're enamored by the things of this world and the riches of this world. We slander, we gossip, we have hatred in our heart. I've confessed that in this church about two years ago. We're proud of our, and we have selfish or self-righteous behaviors. I'm guilty of these just as some of you may be. But Romans tells us not only about the wicked in chapter one, and I won't read it to you because it's not uplifting. But Romans 2 tells us, so were some of you. So we should not be quick to judge the homosexual, the transgender person, the drug addict, the alcoholic, or whatever sin it might be. As my father used to say to me as a boy, There, but by the grace of God, go I. But also a believer who does not repent, God will judge as well. So I submit to you the only way to find full release from any sins is to turn yourself completely over to Jesus. Daily give yourself to him, your mind, your emotions, your feelings, your attitudes, your desires, your needs, your wants. Give everything that you are to him. And if you do this as a daily discipline, you will find the temptations and the difficulties fall away. Do it often. Temptations start to fall away and lose their power over you. We're in a battle for our soul and the souls of those around us. 
until Christ comes for us in death or in rapture? Are you waiting for the undertaker? Some of us with white hair, that's probably our, our lot, whether we want it or not. Or maybe some of you are going to see the upper taker. You won't taste death. You'll be taken in the air. What does Corinthians tell us? In the twinkling of an eye. So just for a moment, blink your eye. How fast was that? Gone. How wonderful to not have to taste death, to spend eternity with Jesus. Wow. How wonderful. I'd like to also tell you a little story from the book of Acts about the seven sons of Sceva. Are you familiar with that story? Now, the seven sons of Sceva were not believers, but they saw demons being cast out of people by the followers of Jesus. They said, wow, we want that kind of power. Hey, we're good, we're righteous, we're good Jews, we can do this. So they went about trying to cast out demons. If you know the story, they got the beating of their life from one demon. But what was the result of this, of this thing that happened? Fear fell on the church. Fear of God. And believers came and openly confessed their sins and evil, evil deeds. And it said, these are believers now we're talking about. And a number of them practiced sorcery. So these are believers going to church involved with something that God abhors. It said they came and burned their scrolls. Now, we don't know how many people this was, but apparently there were a number of them because their scrolls equaled 50,000 drachmas. You know, so, okay, John, what's a drachma? A drachma is equal to a skilled worker's daily wage. So if we were to convert that to today, how much does a mechanic earn in a day? Maybe 300, possibly. They earn quite a lot. What about a skilled carpenter? Some of you are skilled carpenters. 150 maybe a day? Now multiply that times 50,000. And you're somewhere in the range of 7 to $20 million. So this was a huge sacrifice. These people truly did repent, and it cost them dearly financially. But it showed that they repented. Are you familiar with revivals that have happened around the world, whether in Indonesia or in Wales or in the United States? There was never a revival in history that didn't start with confession of sin and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church to boldly preach the gospel. If the church is not right with Jesus, it is not ready for the souls that God desires to bring into his kingdom and into this church. So the second uh, jubilant entry is Christ coming into your heart 
filling you with his love, his grace, his mercy, and yes, his joy. So what about today? Do we know in our hearts who Jesus is? Sometimes we evangelicals are kind of cavalier with Jesus. We kind of have him in our back pocket. We just kind of pull out Jesus whenever we need him. You know, shoot up a prayer and like, we're cool, man. Um, We often ask Jesus for this, that, and the other thing. We live in a materialistic culture, so we would like a new car or we would like this thing or that thing. But I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is not a spiritual vending machine. He's the Lord. Do we ever praise him for who he is or what he's already done? Let us shout praise to him. Now, we shout for celebrities. We shout for sports people. They scored a touchdown. They hit a home run. We're wild. We're screaming. I've been at Dodger games when I lived in Los Angeles. The next day, can't talk. Because screaming, right? But what about our Lord? What about our Savior? He did more than hit a home run, a score, a touchdown. He saved the world. He saved you. He saved me. So doesn't he deserve to receive praise from our lips? The scripture tells us, let everything that have breath praise the Lord. So I'm going to invite you just for a few minutes here to praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Praise you, Father, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Praise you, Jesus, for bringing us into this church and having a family of of people to love us and reach out to us and help us. Praise you, Lord. You're worthy of praise and adoration and glory and honor. We praise him for delivering us from COVID. We praise him for answering our prayers. We praise him for our brother Dennis right there who went through COVID and went through pneumonia and he's still sitting in that chair. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for other answered prayers in his church for people who went to the hospital sick on their deathbed and God by his grace and mercy brought them back home again. So we should be praising the Lord. You know, there's power in praise. There's power in saying praise to the Lord. Devil hates that. Devil shudders when we worship and give glory and honor to our King and our Savior. He doesn't like that. So we should be doing the things he doesn't like. We also praise God for our youth leaders. We have some amazing, wonderful youth leaders in our church. Lord, we praise you for Audra and Matt and Charity and Alan and Mary and Tom. And we thank you for Derek and Amber and Amanda and probably there are others that I don't know about. But I'm thankful for these people that are giving their lives, pouring out their lives for the next generation, for the young people in our church. Praise God, 40 kids come into this church every Friday night. 40 kids. Wow. Praise the Lord for that. And let's remember to pray for those kids because they're in the battle of their lives. 
the wickedness in this in this society now is at epic proportions. They're faced with all kinds of temptations and challenges and everything else. So we should be remembering them. And remember those kids that aren't saved. There are so many kids in our high schools and junior highs, broken families, mom and dad both in jail, living with grandma, or living with someone who's not a family member, hurting, angry. We need to, they need to see the love of Jesus too. God's birthing this in my heart because I work with these kids and I get pretty angry at them because of how they treat me and how they act. But I have to have a change of heart. I have to repent in my heart, in my attitude. So they see the glory of Jesus in my life. They see the light of Jesus in my life. That's what I want them to see. Yesterday we were over at uh, Oxford Hills High School praying for our youth and the youth of of this area. And we need the Lord. We need the Lord in this. They're not just the future, they're the present. These young people in our church, they're not just for tomorrow. They're back there serving us at the soundboard. They're serving in the Sunday school. They can't wait to roll up their sleeves and serve God. Praise God for these young people in our church. The third jubilant entry is Jesus is coming back. It's re-alerted. Praise the Lord, he's coming back. We're not just stuck here. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's here with us, but he's coming back. He's coming back to set the record straight. So for all those things that we see around us that are evil and wicked, and, and when, is, when is God's judgment ever going to come? It's coming. Maybe not in your time and my time, but it's coming. So pray for those people that are wicked. They need to be saved too. God loves them too, even if we don't. Confession. (laughs) The scripture gives us a few references to this, and I won't read them all in entirety. There's many of them. But the first one that I see in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 1, where all the disciples and the apostles are standing, and they watch Jesus go up into heaven. And there are angels, and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you staring up into heaven? This Jesus who you saw go into heaven will come back in the same way. Promise, coming back. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he or she has done. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day or the hour when the Son of Man is coming, and an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24 tells us, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not even Jesus knows, according to the scripture. Only the Father knows. 
Luke tells us, but watch yourself, for that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There's lots of stuff that's going on now that can knock us off course. So we have to stay awake. We have to be vigilant. There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. And in Matthew, it also tells us, for as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. So what is Jesus looking for when he comes back? First of all, that you know he's coming back. And this is not just a Navy SEAL rescue mission. He's coming back for a bride. He's coming back for a church, a militant church, not in your face like we see some of these people cursing people who have serious sin problems. But he's coming back for a church that believes in him, believes that he can do what he's done in the past. Do you believe that God wants to set people free from drug addiction, from alcoholism, from sexual sins? Do you believe that Jesus still has the power to change people's lives and make them whole and restore them. Do you believe that? Then let's, let's get about it. Let's get about believing God to touch people's lives. Personally, I'm in the middle of a battle with a young man who has alcohol addiction, drug addiction, and has bipolar He's in Texas. He's the son of one of my colleagues. And I'm praying with all my heart and believing that God's going to set him free from drugs, from alcohol. I'm believing God's going to heal his mind and restore him. And his mother, who is my colleague, is believing too. Now, I don't know if she's born again yet, but I'm working on it. The world will be crazy. It's pretty crazy already. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew to be awake, to be, be looking around, be prepared. Don't let these things knock us off guard. And I think one of the biggest things that Satan tries to do to us is knock us off our prayer game. I know I've been knocked off my prayer game many times. So we need, we need to think about that. 
be patient. Like I said, I may, I may see the undertaker, but be patient. He's coming, and when he does, he's going to set things right. Think about those in Revelation tells us that are sitting under the throne of God. These are the ones that were killed for their faith. And they cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, before you judge those who did these wicked things? So if they can wait, we can wait. Also, keep your head up. As I've been saying, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep living for Jesus. Keep filling your life with his word. Keep fellowshipping with other believers. Keep yourself strong. Because God's going to call on you to pray for somebody. God's going to call on you to give a testimony for the hope of glory that's in your heart. God's depending on you to do your job. And we can't do that if we're not really walking close with the Lord because it's so easy to get lost. Very easy to get lost. Celebrate that he's coming back. Praise you, Jesus. You're coming back. You're going to set the record straight. Thank you, Lord, that there is justice. But he's coming for us, a victorious church, a stunningly beautiful bride, ready for the Lamb. Jesus has to mean more to us than a Sunday service, more than a fellowship meal, more than rejection by friends or colleagues. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I'm sure you know the parable of Jesus of the ten virgins. I won't tell you the whole story, or read it to you rather, but we know that there were ten. And five had their lamps full, and they were waiting, and they were ready. And five were sort of ready. <laughs> they ran out of oil. They wanted the ones that were prepared to give them oil. But they said, we can't. And I want you to think about this. If the oil is your... I'm not supposed to stray. See, I'm straying already, Pastor. <laughs> uh, if the oil in your life is your relationship with Christ, your knowledge of the word, your surrendered heart to Christ. I can't give that to you. And you can't give that to me. That's our oil. So keep your life full of Jesus and his word ready and be ready for his sudden return. So in closing, there are three jubilant entries. One, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The second one, Jesus wants to come into your heart, make you a new person, make you a member of his kingdom. And third, the joyous return of Christ our King. Amen.